0: Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Hello, welcome to the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange. I am thrilled today to have Trisha Meyer. She is an affiliate legend and excited to dive into all things affiliate PMA, her background. Welcome. Welcome, Trisha.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm ready to talk as usual. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's there's no shortage of things going on in the affiliate industry. And i um, I'd love to just maybe kick off a little bit about yourself and your and your background, kind of current role. I know there's a lot of questions I want to ask you because you've been in this space longer uh, and have been involved in some really pivotal moments in performance marketing. And maybe just maybe start off with what you're working on right now and focused on at the moment.
1: Sure. So I actually started as a lawyer, I went to law school, took the bar in Indiana and luckily passed on the first try, Um, became an attorney and was working for LexisNexis, which is um, like legal news and information. And it was at a really pivotal time in legal research because it was going from the old school of having to go to the library and look up everything in a book to being able to go on this thing called the internet and put in a search and be able to just search whatever you want. Um, So it was really It was a completely new time for legal research. And for me, it meant learning how to do everything I'd learned in law school, how to do it on the computer, which then kind of led to, oh, well, if I can do legal research on the computer, what else can I do on the computer? And then from there, it was just a weird kind of slide into affiliate marketing. Started off, I had just had my kids And so they were like two and four maybe at the time. And I was looking for things to do while they were at home. And so I started a a blog. It was before I think WordPress even existed. So I was just like hand coding HTML back then um, that was just called Helping Moms Connect. And I was looking around at all these other mom sites and they had all these great brand names on them, like sponsored by Target. And I was like, how does this little bitty blog with almost no following, how did they get sponsored by Target? So I started going to like mm-hmm. local places around me asking if they wanted to sponsor this website of mine. And they're all like, no, we're why would we want to do that? Everybody that reads your blog lives in another city or another country. So why would we want to sponsor you? And so I thought, okay, I'm clearly missing something here because the, these other people who also have little blogs like mine are getting sponsored by these huge companies. So my husband is in IT and he helped me install a little tracker where I could click on all these people's links and then see what happened to them between the time I clicked on the link and I got to Target or Walmart or whatever. And lo and behold, I found BeFree Network. And then it was like, oh, and then there's CJ and then there's <laughs> uh, you know all of these other link share. And I started finding all these networks and it was like, oh, affiliate marketing. Okay. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> So, of course, no one really knew what affiliate marketing was. The
0: history of affiliate marketing.
1: Yeah. And so I ended up just stumbling in. Like, I, I found those links and I started searching, like, what does that mean? What does affiliate marketing mean? And I found the Best Web forum, and that was like being thrown into the fire um, to learn affiliate marketing. And then I went to an affiliate summit because they told me that's what I should do. And within well, six months of going to my first affiliate summit, I quit my job as a lawyer and just started doing affiliate marketing full time. So I have never really looked back except that I always missed the law. And so after doing just kind of straight really affiliate marketing for 10, 12 years on the publisher side, I started getting involved with the PMA um, 15 years ago when it first started. And then that gave me a chance to start looking at, well, how does my legal knowledge overlap with what I do as an affiliate? And it turned out that there's really a lot of that because there's so many regulatory and compliance issues. And there are so few affiliate marketers that Mm -hmm. understand those things. And, you know, we as lawyers tend to talk Mm -hmm. legal jargon, (laughs) I've kind of found my space trying to bridge that gap between the people that do affiliate marketing all the time. I just want to know how does this apply to me and the legal side of it, which is a little bit more technical and tricky.
0: Wow. That, that's amazing. What, what Maybe an interesting question is kind of like, what's a legal area that people in affiliate marketing get wrong? What's a legal area that's like underutilized or underrated to be focused on it and something people need to be really mindful of?
1: I mean, for me right now, the biggest legal issue is obviously the FTC disclosure stuff. That's kind of the place where we know that there are, are clear laws and now we've been given clear guidelines, but still people don't quite understand on a day-to-day basis how it applies to them. And it's the thing from a legal standpoint that kind of applies to all of us equally that we all need to understand.
0: Yeah. And and maybe like helping people understand what went down? I know you and I have talked about it, but what happened and and what's going on with the FTC's guidelines and rulings lately?
1: So the FTC, we've always had like this law and that is basically this, you know, you have to tell the truth in advertising. And it's just, it's always been like a very specific law without a lot of examples. And over the last 20 years, the FTC has given us more and more examples in different ways of how that applies to affiliate marketing, how it applies to influencer marketing. And we were left kind of piecing some things together. We were piecing together lawsuits and settlement agreements and frequently asked questions and Twitter chats with the FTC and kind of I won't say making up our own guidelines, but kind of making up our own best practices and saying, well, this is what they said. This is probably what that means for us. But just recently, the FTC has now come out and said, okay, we're going to make this super clear affiliates this applies to you influencers this applies to you Uh, affiliate managers this applies to you and so what they've done now is really clearly delineate it does apply to us we're all responsible we all play a very specific role in it and there will be ramifications for those of us who don't do what we're supposed to do
0: yeah it seems like they've up the ante on the clarity and the severity of the fdc guidelines from what it seems
1: yeah, they've just made it very clear now, you know, they, they had not really used the words influencer and affiliate before in the guidelines, and now they're using them a lot. They're giving us very specific examples about if you do a blog, if you um, do a video, if you are promoting as an affiliate, if you're promoting as an influencer, and then they also started talking about intermediaries, which you know, they don't use our terminology, but what they explained was affiliate manager outsource program manager, agency, those kinds of things. And you know, what they were saying was that if you are this middleman between a retailer and a publisher and you play any part in recruiting these influencers and publishers, giving them links, negotiating the contracts, if you play any kind of role like that, you're now just as responsible for the disclosures as what the retailers and the publishers are.
0: Yeah. For those following home, affiliates and influencers need to disclose they're getting payment receiving a commission from a brand or an advertiser and what used to be allowable is is in some cases not and the clarity needs to be there and there's a lot of specific legal language and definitions it has to be what unavoidable right
1: right that's their big new thing in the past they always said clear and conspicuous and people still found a way to get around that you, know, you would say well it was clear and conspicuous you just had to read to the bottom of the post in order to see it Well, that doesn't count because people don't read to the bottom of the post. People don't watch till the very end of the video. People don't click to read all of the comments on video. So they said, okay, we're going to change it. We're going to say unavoidable. Unavoidable means just that. You cannot watch a video. You can't read a review. You can't look at a sponsored image without seeing that disclosure.
0: And maybe jumping to kind of the next phase of this, right? So where everyone's making sense of it, they're getting counsel from you. They're getting counsel from legal experts are getting counsel from affiliate leaders. Where do you think we're going to land on the FDC ruling? Like you've written up some really clear, helpful material. How do you think it really like just materially impacts the, the advertiser or the agency, the influencer?
1: I think we're going to see more procedures put into place by the retailers and by the agencies where there's a lot more documentation going on. You know, whether it's using databases or spreadsheets or whatever it takes for them to be able to start documenting. This is the education that we gave the influencers. This is what we include in all of our standard contracts. Um, This is how we monitored. We probably will see some letters coming out from the FTC before too long of people that are not in compliance. They'll probably go after a few big guys just to say, hey, we put out these guidelines for a reason. Yeah. And now we're going to send you some letters and then they'll publish that stuff on their website. And then all the rest of us will go and read that (laughs) and we'll say, okay, well, now we know that this really is happening and there's money at stake here and legal fees and things like that. So I think it's just a matter of time. I think they're giving everybody just a little bit of time to get used to the new guidelines, but you know they wouldn't have put them in place if they didn't think there were problems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then maybe looking back over time with the FTC and disclosure for affiliates and with influencers, how se- like maybe just cutting to the chase of like how severe has it gotten? Like, what are some of the penalties have you seen in this space where big brands have had their li- you know the wrist slapped? and they've had to make corrections or they've been fined, like what kind of things can happen if you're out of compliance in your legal and affiliate experience?
1: I mean, just from the start, you're gonna to have to hire an attorney. So you're gonna be out your legal fees, You know, probably even if you did nothing wrong or if you were in the gray area, you're gonna to have to hire an attorney for that. Then you could be sanctioned. So there could be tens of thousands of dollars in fees that you have to pay per occurrence. So if you're a retailer and you worked with 25 influencers and none of them did their disclosures, you're gonna get fined for every one of those. If you're an influencer who repeatedly does it, you could get fined for every one of those. Um, And also, you know, we've seen like with, with a lawsuit with Legacy Learning Systems, which was a retailer that was paying affiliates and the affiliate wasn't disclosing it. There was also just a lot of red tape put into place then for the retailer saying, you know, well, going forward, You are going to have to do this, this, this. You're going to have to comply with this. You're going to have to start keeping all these records. You're going to have to notify us of any changes of address with your company. You're going to have to notify us of other things. So, you know, once you get in trouble, then they're also watching you more closely going forward, a lot more scrutiny, and just a lot more administrative work for you to do as well.
0: Yeah. Have you got a sense that brand verity and impact and other technologies that are already monitoring can are thinking about this or may have some type of solutions in place to address some of this stuff?
1: I think that they're trying to make it a little bit easier. I've seen a number of solutions, technological solutions, where they're trying to make it easier if people are using specific terminology, so they are able to look for certain words. I've seen somewhere they can read images in case you're using images for your disclosure, that they can also read the text on that image to make sure that you're disclosing properly. So I think those kind of technical tools are going to be necessary, especially for big brands that work with a lot of different Types of endorsers. And when they say endorsers, I mean, they're talking about everything. They're talking about the influencers on social media. They're talking about the bloggers that are doing um, top 10 lists of things. They're talking about the product review and comparison sites. They're talking about this whole realm. So, you know, it's not just so easy to say, well, we just won't work with influencers anymore. Well, we just won't work with, you know, this type of affiliates. That's not going to help because you'd be missing out on so many opportunities.
0: Anyone who's getting compensated.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it applies to, you know, it applies to all media. They're just giving us more specific examples now because we are a newer medium. And so they're giving us, you know, some more specific examples.
0: And in the scenario where an advertiser, an agency documents, coaches, provides the get counsel, just throwing out a hypothetical here, and let's say 10% of your influencers and affiliates don't comply with that or 5% of them do, you know, I don't think we know the exact answer of what would happen or if the, the FTC is going to smack the wrist of a $10 million a year 2 c com brand. But what do you think plays out in that scenario? And in this case, the legal area, it sounds like all three are still in the same boat and, and at risk. And what are you seeing? And what, how does that like scenario play out?
1: So they're looking for kind of a reasonable and so I think, you know, if you're a retailer mm-hmm. who has signed a contract with an agency and part of that agreement says that the agency is going to monitor the disclosure, and then the agency is working with the influencers and affiliates and they've put a system in place, mm-hmm. if the FCC comes along and says, oh, look, we saw these TikToks that were not disclosed, or we see this um, review site that's not disclosing, and they go to everybody in that chain, the retailer is going to say, okay, here's the contract we have with the agency where they are taking responsibility as the experts for this. The agency comes in and says, you're absolutely right. Here is the email that we send whenever somebody joins the program explaining to them the FTC disclosure. Here's the monthly newsletter that we sent out reminding them of the disclosures. And here's our spreadsheet that shows that we've been monitoring 10% on a rotating basis, auditing this stuff periodically. The FTC is likely going to come in and say, okay, that's all great, but 10% isn't really enough. We would really like to see you doing 25 to 30%, like whatever those numbers are. In that case, I don't think mm-hmm. you're going to get fined. I think the FTC is going to send you a letter back that says, okay, we see that this was reasonable to you as a small agency or whatever, but we really think you're going to have to step that up a little bit more in order to catch more of this.
0: Yeah, that's super informative and awesome and, and super helpful. In switch, maybe switching gears a little bit, you know, you, when you got into this space, I, I know there's so much happening with the FTC and, and there's lots to talk about there. There's also a lot of exciting things happening with the PMA. Maybe an interesting segue of all your work with the PMA, maybe a little bit about the, the work being done on the toolbar and desktop browser data that's happening. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that and, and kind of what you're working on there.
1: Absolutely. This whole area of affiliate marketing, it's like groundhog day. (laughs) When I first started in affiliate marketing, there was so much talk about toolbars and they're killing the industry and they're stealing everyone's commissions and we hate them and we're not gonna work with them anymore. And lawsuits being filed. And then, you know, everybody kind of got together and said, Yeah, this is bad. This isn't happening. Every network said, Nope, we're not letting them in our programs, we're putting this in all of our terms. And it all just kind of played out like that for, you know, maybe a decade or more that you really didn't hear anything. And then you started, it was almost like a little whack-a-mole. Like every now and again, you'd see a pop-up of like, oh, does so-and-so have a toolbar now? Oh, wait, do they have a toolbar also? Wait, but they're a really reputable company. So is it a good toolbar? And then, you know, as it started percolating, then it became, you know, okay, well, if toolbars are back... What does that mean for the rest of us? And then that's when the discussions really started happening because it went from just there are a couple toolbars out there. And then, you know, the network's saying, well, maybe we'll let them in if we test them and they meet XYZ. Or the retailer's saying, well, maybe we'll work with them, but only on, you know, this kind of basis or that kind of basis. And then publishers started finding out and saying, whoa, wait a minute, what does that do to my commissions? Am I losing commissions to them? Am I not? Or the networks monitoring this? Like, what's going on here? And so that's where the kind of the PMA came in. But a lot of times, when these complaints start happening, when there are big changes, they start coming to us and our members start saying, have you heard about this? Have you talked about this? Is the PMA doing anything about this? And so we started, you know, and luckily we have a lot of people that have been here since the first time this all happened. So we could kind of say, okay, we know where we've come from and we know what the evolution has been in the industry. Now we just have to figure out how do we continue that evolution that's good for all of the players and the consumers, and the industry as a whole. And that's where the problem comes in, that those are not all aligned. And so trying to figure out how do we weight each of those is what is really difficult right now.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. And those not as you know versed in affiliate marketing, you have the brand advertisers footing the bill, spending the money, wanting to get placement, the partners or influencers or publishers out there who are promoting those brands. Networks and the agencies, kind of in the middle, supporting and, and tracking and promoting those. And for 20, twenty plus years, you've had some affiliates, partners have launched browser plugins, browser extensions, toolbars that consumers opt into. Hopefully, to say, "Hey, I'm okay if I I purchase a pair of pants or a short, you know, swimsuit or or running shoes, that cash back will be." logged as my in my browser program or my airline miles will be logged just sort of those uninitiated uh, what, what trisha was sharing so to your point they're getting other partners that are promoting maybe higher funnel partners like content discovery maybe some elements of search are not our newsletter not getting credit in a last click attribution model whereas the toolbar is getting a lot of that credit or claiming that credit is that is that an accurate way of phrasing the challenge that that the toolbar represents for the industry
1: yeah there's a really big difference between a consumer who downloads a toolbar that they think is just going to show them the weather every day, but it turns out on the back end, it's overwriting every affiliate link that they click on versus somebody who downloads a toolbar that they know is going to show them the most recent coupons or show them what the cashback they're going to get if they make a purchase that is actually encouraging the sale and that might be helping that sale along or benefiting that retailer. So there, that's the other thing about these, you know, the toolbars and extensions that there's a really big difference in the value that they provide to the retailer and to the consumer, depending on what type they are. So, you know, there's something to be said for the consumer part of the journey, which is, you know, I own a cashback site where I don't have a toolbar. And my husband called me in at Christmas when he was working on my 21-year-old's computer and he said, mom's going to kill you. And she was like, oh no, what I do? And he's like, uh, you're going to have to tell your mom what you did. And she was like, what did I do? And he turns the computer to me. He goes, she has the honey toolbar installed. And she was like, yeah, I get coupons. I'm like, yeah, but that's what Sunshine Rewards does. And she's like, yeah, but they don't pop up and remind me. And I'm like, what?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I remind you every day.
1: You treat treat her like my company paid for you to go to college. And yet you don't use it. But that for me was a real aha moment of like, this is some a kid who understands affiliate marketing because her mom's been doing it in front of her face all these years. She has a blog where she puts an affiliate link. She gets it, but she's a consumer and she is the target demographic of consumer for a lot of the online shopping now. And so, you know, to hear her say, yeah, I love Sunshine Rewards, but I just don't remember to go there. I don't remember to go back. They don't give me as good of coupons. They don't always, you know, have what I'm looking for. Like, I hear that and I think, yeah, I can't tell her not to use that. So if I can't expect my own daughter not to use these toolbars when I know that it's saving money and helping her, how can I say, well, for the good of the industry we need to get rid of these toolbars because I, you know, I see it firsthand. So, but then, you know, I own content sites. So I own content sites that I know are losing commissions because at the end, somebody will have that pop up and, and that toolbar will end up getting that commission. So, you know, I feel like, I'm sitting right in the middle of it and I can see it all around me and I can see every perspective. But until we get like the really smart people together and start taking the data that we can glean from all different perspectives and the different opinions and putting everybody into the same room to try to figure this thing out, I don't think we're going to come up with a solution that makes everyone happy.
0: Yeah. Is the problem and trying to kind of summarize it for the audience, it sounds like it's a problem of, there's unclear standards, there's claims both real and probably unreal of certain partners, affiliates, toolbars are taking credit where maybe they shouldn't be. And that could apply to other partners. So there's a whole spectrum of toolbar types that go from the nefarious that you alluded to earlier to the super helpful for the user and like fully, you know, incremental, we'll say, is a, the most extreme uh, assessment. Like, how would you kind of Summarize the, the challenge that you're trying to tackle with with the elevation of this issue within the PMA that we're all working towards. Because I think it's it's just interest, interesting one of like there's the, what's the end goal solution, but how would you kind of summarize the the problem for those especially uninitiated to toolbars and affiliate marketing?
1: There's too much anecdotal evidence and not enough data to support anybody's belief. There's anecdotal evidence. I know they are probably overriding. I know that that is probably a returning user and not a new user. Like there's too much anecdotal evidence that we all rely on in our arguments. And we're not seeing enough actual data-driven results to be able to make decisions that are going to be best for everyone.
0: And that's brilliant. Why do you think we're lacking that data and it's more emotion and opinion and hypothesis-based
1: Some of it is just no one's pushing for the data yet. If no one is requiring a toolbar to differentiate between their toolbar traffic and their on-site traffic and their newsletter traffic, if no one's requiring that, why would the toolbar offer that up? Why would they come to the network or the retailer or the PMA and say, oh yeah, 70% of our traffic comes from the toolbar and only 30% from all of our other sources. Why would they offer that up if they didn't have to? Um, Until we give everybody a reason To actually start measuring all these things and sharing it, most people aren't just going to voluntarily, number one, take on the cost of figuring out how to measure these different things. And number two, share anything that's not in their own best interest.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that it seems to be a movement over time of this industry to be becoming more professionalized, becoming more transparent. And I think it also maybe partially answers that reason of why there's so much speculation because when a entity says I'm not going to share you the full transparency, I would imagine that might lend itself to oh I hypothesize that this is happening. I'm worried about this happening. I I claim this is happening, when in fact we don't. We need to find and see that data and have it be more transparent.
1: And the more competitive that things get um, in the industry, the more that everyone. Needs every nickel and dime. You know, in those days where we were in the heyday of affiliate marketing, and all you had to do was put up a website with ten coupons, and you could stay at home with your kids and not have to have another job. Like that was the heyday. You didn't care so much if you were losing twenty percent of your um, commissions to toolbars or whatever else, because you were making enough money and you didn't care. And then now that's different. It is very competitive. You don't just have some coupon sites and some blogs, you have influencers, you have all those different social media, you have technology, you have cart technology that are affiliates. You have, you know, basically every part of the consumer journey, there's an affiliate somewhere in there. And within each of those, there are, you know, maybe 50 or hundred or 10,000 affiliates of that certain type. So the more competitive that it gets to split up that affiliate pie, the more we're all going to kind of be at each other for, you know, what we each think we deserve.
0: Yeah. That's such an interesting point. And it sounds like there's been a lot of con- good conversation with PMA. Maybe, maybe um, I feel like people are starting to come out of the woodwork, sharing information about the survey that you put out, asking for information like how important this is to you. Maybe, kind of wrapping up the thought of that exercise. Like, what was your reaction to some of the response from the industry? Maybe initially, and then maybe where do you think where do you think we're heading with that?
1: So I love that initially everyone wanted to take the survey and give us their opinions and kind of tell us what they were doing. But then I didn't love, even though I expected that when we actually got on the calls with everyone, everyone said, yeah, but we're not actually going to give you any data because it's either proprietary or we don't feel confident enough in it to share it, or it can't be measured across different agencies anyway. So what's the use? Like basically everyone wants to be a part of this. Everyone wants to try to help, but no one really wants to share their data. So we're just going to have to Keep going at it and find different ways to get it. And it's going to mean having more conversations. It's going to mean talking to the networks and saying, you know, what is it that you do have? And is there anything additional that you're willing to put into place? It's going to be case studies where maybe we don't get all of the data that an agency has, but they're willing to do a case study on one particular merchant or one particular toolbar or something like that. So, you know, we may not be able to get all of the data that we were looking for, but knowing that so many people want to be a part of this and want to help make a change in this area, I think there will be people that are out there thinking right now creatively about what they can contribute and ways that they can f- figure out a way to be able to get this data and share it.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I've, I've had some recent conversations around you know various partner types and the challenge of incrementality, which w- w- opens up a whole nother question, a whole nother can of worms, which is similar but very different to the attribution challenge and the crediting and the multi-stage of how that have you seen anything interesting or valuable to kind of try to unlock was this partner bringing incremental value in an my definition being like if this was removed then this channel or level or partner was removed that that advertiser would have gotten that sale anyway so in the absence of it is it truly incremental? Is it bringing value to to the advertiser as a new, new-to-file customer or a purchase? And so uh, we haven't talked about this a ton, but I'm so curious because it does kind of dovetail off of the concept of toolbar incrementality. There's so many questions that advertisers and folks outside of it looking in sometimes go, why would I want that? And so there's this balance of trying to look at the data to determine, have you seen anything you find interesting in helping determine and educate that? And saying, hey, this is bringing value, this is not?
1: I think at the start, people define incrementality differently. And so you first have to start by looking at your business and what your business needs are, because you might be the type of business that doesn't get repeat customers very often. You sell funeral home caskets. How many times is somebody going to come by buy, and buy one of those same things from you? Hopefully not very many, but you know, you sell tennis shoes, you want them to come back and buy them every two to three months. So depending on the type of stuff that you're selling, are you a subscription service or are you a standalone product? Do you something that people is something that people buy regularly or something that's a once in a lifetime purchase for them? You know, those types of things, it's very different what someone might consider to be incremental value. Then you're talking about you know, is the customer, is it incremental? Then when you're looking at the sales, Mm -hmm. there's a difference there too. Is this a person who you just want to come back and buy over and over and over again, because you're something like a Shein where you're selling, you know, very low price stuff, but you want them to buy something new every single month. Or are you somebody or your customer, somebody who might only make a purchase once a year, but when they do, you want it to be, an $800 purchase instead of a $400 purchase. So is it the average order value that is incremental to you? Or is it the number of purchases, the number of times that person comes back that's incremental to you? And again, there's no real agreement because everyone has uh, different business purposes and what's profitable to their businesses or not.
0: Yeah. I think it's such an interesting point. And I come, I make that point often myself. I feel like because it's, I think it's easy and it's natural for us as humans to kind of try to develop rules and pattern matching. And we, and the concept of benchmarking, I mean, it's often things like that can actually get people into a lot of trouble when there's crowd or group think involved. And it's like, oh, well, coupon and deal doesn't work or cashback doesn't work or I need that three to one LTV ratio or I'm not going to pay for return customers. Like, there's all these myths that come along with our performance marketing world. It's like, are you really looking at the, Data objectively, going back to your point earlier, or are you coming in with some bias that needs to be tempered in your measurement of the experiment and your measurement of the campaign and your measurement of the channel? It's super interesting.
1: I was looking for discounts for a Broadway show that I want to take my mom to when we go for affiliate summit. And I went to a coupon site to look for discounts. I kind of Googled it, clicked on the link, and then they didn't have any coupons for that particular. Broadway seller, but instead they said, here are coupons for all of their competitors where you might also be able to get tickets on sale because that merchant doesn't have an affiliate program or doesn't allow affiliates into their or allow coupon sites into their program. So instead, there's a website now with your brand on it and then coupons to all of your competitors. And so when you say like I don't want to work with coupons, I don't want to work with cashback, how many sales did you just lose because somebody has put up a site and is now sending your traffic to your competitors? Again, it goes back to you know what in the end is what are you looking for and what are you going to lose if you don't work with certain affiliates?
0: I love that. Yeah, maybe that's maybe a good segue to kind of wrap up and think about like I love what you were able to do with your blog, you know, helping moms connect. I love what you've done with Sunshine Rewards. You're a true affiliate marketing leader, an entrepreneur. You're leading and educating a lot of people in this space that are that are steeped in it, but also getting to know it for the first time, which some, there's a lot of folks that are still uh, unaware. What are some cool stories or maybe like a, a an interesting takeaway that you found from that from the blogging and the Sunshine Rewards experience? I'd love to hear maybe some like ahas or takeaways that you've had over the years through that.
1: I think I would never encourage anybody to start a cash back site because are so much work and they're so involved. And yet owning the cash back site was what has allowed me to get to know the industry so well. Because when you have to work with every single network and every agency and thousands of different merchants. And you have to know how to um, append sub IDs for every network, which is different for every network. And you have to know which ones have coupon feeds and APIs and which ones don't. And you have to understand transaction reversals and cookie links and you know the payment cycle of every different network. As a cashback owner, you have to know all of that minutia about the industry. So like I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy to own a cash back site. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna learn everything, sometimes it is just in affiliate marketing, it is just doing the hard things and having to kind of go through it and do the hard things and learn it all and then decide, you know, okay. I like this part and I don't like that part. And that's not for me. And then you, you know, you have a better idea of where you want to end up here. Because there's so many different directions to go. You could just be doing social. You could just be blogging. You could move into the agency side. You could move to work for networks. There's so many different directions to go. So I think, you know, for me, it was just doing the hardest, worst thing first. And then from there, I was able to figure out the stuff I actually like.
0: That's awesome. What's your hope for the industry and affiliate marketing over in the, in the future? What do you What are you hoping it gets to, or what are your maybe some goals with the PMA?
1: I hope that there will no longer be a negative stigma attached with affiliate marketing just because there are bad players. I hope that if you've had a bad experience in affiliate marketing because you worked with the wrong agency or you were on the wrong network or whatever, that that doesn't keep you from coming back either as a publisher or a retailer. I hope that, you know, eventually every retailer will want to have an affiliate program. Will they work with every single affiliate? No, but there will at least be that possibility out there because the more retailers we have in the industry, then the more entrepreneurialism we'll be able to have with the affiliates because there are more opportunities for everyone to make money in different ways.
0: I love it. Here's to the entrepreneurial spirit. Here's to affiliate marketing as an industry and, and continuing to make it better. I think that's what this is all about and really appreciate the insights, Trisha. This is awesome.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.